0: I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to all of you. I will get my chance to say it He is risen. Amen. I am the other Pastor Eric here at Trinity, and um, in case you forget who is who, he's, he's the one with the beard. I'm still holding on kind of to my 90s goatee, and uh, I'm the one who wears a tie once a year on Easter, and he, uh, he busts out the Hawaiian shirt, so it's, it's all good. Um, for the past eight weeks, we've been looking at the Psalms. We've called our series an anatomy of the soul because we've been looking at how the Psalms show us how every emotion and every human experience of the soul can lead us into deeper faith. We've looked at, I was reviewing it this week, our restlessness, our anger, stress, weariness, guilt, homesickness, and loneliness. And how all of those things are meant to lead us deeper into God, deeper into prayer and worship. In reviewing this list, though, I realized we've been talking a lot about the harder emotions, all the stuff we want less of in our lives. Our psalm today, we've heard it read twice, is full of an emotion that we all want more of in our lives, right? It's joy. Joy. Now, joy is something that it's it's better felt and experienced than defined, but I have a definition of joy, kind of this working definition as we look at this psalm this morning. What is joy? What is this joy that we all want more of in our lives? A sense of happiness and delight that fills us and overflows to others. We all want more of that. And Psalm 16 is not just a joyful prayer, it's a prayer of unshakable joy, a joy that fills our entire being. Look at verse 9 again. Verse 9 says, this joy is experienced in my heart, my whole being, my flesh rejoices. It's a joy that can be experienced in any circumstance. Just take a glance at verses 5 through 8. David is saying, If I have you, I've got everything. No matter what's going on, my life is beautiful. In verse 8, David says, It's a joy that won't be shaken, no matter what. And then as we get to the crescendo and the conclusion of the psalm, if you look at verses 10 and 11, it's a joy that not even death can take away. Instead, Death ushers us and moves us into the fullest and richest experience of this joy. Now you may be able to see why this is a good psalm for Easter Sunday, which is the most joyful day for a Christian. But that's not the only reason we're looking at this psalm this morning. This psalm, Psalm 16, was a favorite text for the earliest sermons preached about Jesus. In fact, Peter preached on Psalm 16 in the very first Christian sermon, the very first Christian sermon ever preached, the first Easter sermon in Acts 2. And I realized this week that the Apostle Paul also preached on this psalm in the first recorded sermon that we have of his in Acts 13. Both of them said, Peter and Paul said, because of Easter, we can know. We have reason to believe with confidence. Peter said we can know for certain that this unshakable joy is not only possible, but it's the very thing that Jesus came to give us, that he died to give us. And that Easter, that resurrection proves that he will give to all who believe in him. It can be ours because of Easter. That is, right, a, that's a pretty big and bold claim to make. That's the claim of Easter, unshakable joy. If you make such a big and bold claim, you have to address at least two questions. Is it true? Is it really true? Is it possible? And if so, how can I get it? How can I get unshakable joy Like that, that's what their Easter sermons answer, Peter and Paul. And hopefully this morning, it's what my Easter sermon and message will answer as we look at Psalm 16. I want to walk through this psalm and look at three things. One, why our joy gets shaken. Why? When our joy gets shaken, what can we do? And then lastly, how can we get it? How can we get unshakable joy? First, when our joy gets shaken. The first verse in the psalm, if you'll look with me at verse 1, shows us that this was a prayer written by David when he was really shaken up in his life. Because what does it say? It says, preserve me. It says, protect me, O God, because in you I am taking refuge. Who prays that kind of prayer? This is the prayer of someone who's been badly shaken. Something has happened in David's life, And he needed a safe place. He needed to regain his composure and his perspective. Psalm 16 doesn't tell us exactly what happened. What did he need protecting from? We don't know, but it had to be something big. Because he felt like it was even life-threatening. By the end of the psalm, what is David thinking about? He's thinking about the grave. Sheol. Sheol is, is the Hebrew word for the grave. He's thinking about what's going to happen beyond this life. And David experienced here in Psalm 16 something we all experience. His present circumstances seemed very shaky, he didn't know what was happening. He looked ahead into the future, and his future seemed shaky and uncertain. And because of that, his joy was shaken. He was shaken up. Psalm 16 is him showing us how he found his way back to joy, unshakable joy. But before we get to this unshakable joy, first I want to pause, all of us to pause here at verse 1 and ask, why does our joy get shaken? Why does our joy get shaken? What can we learn from verse 1 even? One word. Why does our joy get shaken? Life. There are two big and undeniable realities about life. The first is, in life, everything gets shaken. Everything gets shaken. Let me explain. Life shakes, for example, our beliefs. Isn't it true that things that At one time you were certain of, you were absolutely sure of, you now, you look back at those things and you say, well, I don't really think that anymore. I I don't believe that anymore. We're hearing more and more stories come out with the advent of of social media. Things people posted when they were 19 or 20 on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. When they become a public figure, you're digging, those things get, get dug up. And people get confronted about this and say, did you know that you said this when you were 19 on Twitter? And the response is, yeah, yeah, I did that. I can't deny I said that. I believe that. I don't believe that anymore. My beliefs have changed. I know this is definitely true for me. If this is true, then can we rely on our intellect? Can we rely on our thinking to tell us what to live for, where to find joy, because we say that the way people thought 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they were all wrong about so many things, so outdated. Do we think it will be different 20 years from now, 50 years from now? How can we find a reasonable ground for unshakable joy if our beliefs are always being shaken up? That's one example. Another one, life shakes our dreams and our expectations. The dream marriage, the dream job, the dream home, the dream family, the dream thing that we have to have, either we don't get them and our joy is shaken, or we do get them and they don't live up to our expectations and our joy is shaken. One more, life shakes us through change. It's been said the one constant in life is change. People change, places change, we change. When all that happens, that shakes us up. Uh, I, I remember the day that, uh, very clearly, I don't know why I remember this day, but I remember the day that I, I put my G.I. Joe figures away and my Star Wars figurines because I tried to get them out and I tried to play with them and I was like, I'm not feeling it anymore. I was like 12 or 13, I said, I'm putting these away. I don't have my joy in these things anymore. Things that once brought us great joy, we change. And they no longer do. In life, everything gets shaken. But not only that, not only does everything get get shaken, in life, everything gets taken. Our achievements get taken. I was in my office this week and I realized in the corner of my office, I have my, my diplomas, my, my uh, undergrad and graduate diploma. They're just sitting there all wrapped up in, uh, in bubble wrap. And it occurred to me, one day, that's where they'll stay. That's where they'll be. Or one of my kids will just toss them in the trash. <laughs> our achievements get taken. Our comforts get taken. We get sick. We will get sick. We'll lose the ability to enjoy physical comforts and pleasures. Our loved ones will be taken from us. Our bodies will be taken from us. Our hair will turn gray. Wrinkles will come. And eventually, our lives, they will be taken. We don't like to think about this, I know. And I'm sorry for bringing it up. But these are two undeniable realities about life. Life shakes everything, and eventually everything gets taken. This is the inescapable reality of life, it's death. But in Psalm 16, do you see what David is saying? He doesn't accept this. He says, is there something in life that life doesn't shake? Is there anything that life doesn't take away from us? How can I be truly joyful? if all the things we take so much joy in can be shaken or taken away from me at any time. I know some of you are there now, life is shaking you, or life has taken something from you. And you need a safe place. David says, take it to God. He is a refuge. You can take it to Him. And he goes on. In, in life... Our joy will be shaken, it will be taken. When it does, we can do what David did, does here. In verse 4, what did he do? He took the opportunity to ask himself a question. What is the joy that I'm really running after? When our joy gets shaken, things are cleared out and we can ask the question, what is the joy I'm after anyways? Look at verse 4. It says, the sorrow of those who run after another God will be multiplied. The idea is that when, when our joy is shaken, then we see, this is what I've been running after. The word could be translated hurrying after, chase after, pursuing. We can see what's driving us. At this time in the ancient world, this was written Many hundreds of years ago, the things that they were running after and chasing were attached to idols. They were, they were attached to deities, gods with names. David says, I'm not going to take the names of these gods on my lips. They had gods of harvest, right? But what were they really running after in worshiping these gods of harvest? It was the joy of security, wasn't it? The joys of success. They had gods of fertility, but what were they really running after? They were running after the joys of family. They had gods of festivals, parties. What were they running after? Running after pleasure and comfort. We don't have the same gods anymore, but we are running after the same exact joys that they were. Not just good things that we hope to have in life, things we hope to enjoy, but they're gods that we worship, we're chasing after them, we're running after them, they're driving our lives. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, turning good things from God into gods, security, success, family, and pleasure. Now, maybe I don't need to answer this question, but do we still do this? Well, consider this. Why would people pay half a million dollars to get their kids into USC? I know the UC people are just laughing at USC right now. (laughs) USC is a good school. Why will we sacrifice sleep? our health, our relationships, for our careers and run ourselves to the ground, not just to have good things, but to run after and chase after security and success and family? Why is it that we can personally and as a society, we can hoard our time, we can hoard our stuff, our things, while we know people all around us are oppressed, they're in poverty, they have nothing. It's not just because we want to enjoy good things. It's because we're running after the God of pleasure. David says, I can see this clearly now that my joy is shaken. If I run after these things, if I make them into my God, then my sorrow will only be multiplied. There's no joy in that. Here's the picture. I don't like running, but I run just because I have to to stay healthy. So I run a little bit, and I can't imagine anything than a race that never ends. Where you're running a race, you're running around the track, and somehow the finish line, it just keeps, it just keeps moving, moving away from you. You're like, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. Oh, it's over there, and you keep running, and it moves. Or even worse, you get to the finish line, you finally finish, you cross the banner and go, Yes! And the official walks up to you and says, here is your prize. Another starting line. You got to keep running. To me, that's the worst imaginable thing in the world. That's what David is saying here. That's the picture he's painting. This is what happens when we run after the wrong things. In verse 4, David says, I'm not going to run that way. But in verse 2, he gives us the opposite side of the coin. The positive side of this, he says, instead, I'm going to say, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I'm going to run after you. The person who comes to the place where they can truly believe and say, verse 2, is the person who can come to truly experience the joy in verses 5 through 9. Just look at those verses with me. Verses 5 through 9. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is he saying? God is everything I need. Whatever good gifts he gives me, it's enough. I look around at my life and I say, wow, I have a beautiful life. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. He says, God's the thing that's always in front of me. I'm always running after him. I'm following him. And he's right next to me when I stumble and fall, when I waver. He's there. So, verse 8, I will not be shaken. I have unshakable joy. This is the teaching of Christianity on joy. Without verse 2, there can be no verses 5 through 9. We must say to God, I run after you alone. For you alone. The Bible says there are only three options in running the race. We can keep running away from God. We can keep chasing after other good things, good things he's made, as our joy, as our God's. Verse 4 says that is only to multiply our sorrow. They can't bear that weight. Option number two, we run to God to get good things from God. Option number three, we run to God to get God. Option one, we call the irreligious approach, saying I don't need God for joy. I'll find it somewhere else. Option two, we can call the religious approach. The mark of a religious person is they don't have joy. They can look on the outside. They're doing all the same things that a Christian does. But inside, they're running after the same exact things as the irreligious person. Their religion is just using God to get what they really want, what they're really running after. And when these things are shaken or taken from them, What's the result? It's a bitterness and an anger towards God. I thought I was doing all these things to get all these things from you. And often they leave faith behind. There's no joy. What is a Christian? A Christian says, when good things God gives me are shaken or taken, I can still be joyful. I can be content. I have a joy that cannot be shaken. So what this means is sometimes the most loving thing that God can do for us is to allow our joy to be shaken, because he so wants to give us the unshakable joy of himself. This helps us understand something very important. It can be one of the most puzzling teachings about joy in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that makes this one of its main themes. It's something that sounds so strange, inconceivable really to our American ears, but it's everywhere in the New Testament. What is it? Let me, let me share from the words of James and Paul and Peter. James says this about joy. Consider it great joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials, You say, what? How is that possible? The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. The Apostle Peter said in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we rejoice even though now for a short time we suffer grief in various trials. Now, you put put all this together. Trials, suffering, grief. Can we rejoice in these? James says, on the other side of these trials, you will be complete. You will lack nothing. Paul says it will produce hope, a character in you, a love that will never disappoint. Peter says it's how we get to a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. I can't even describe it to you. When our joy is shaken, when it's taken away, we say, what are you doing, God? He says this, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm saving you from what you are running after, which will only multiply your sorrows. The sorrow I allow in your life is to save you from the greater sorrow. He says, I know you are running after joy. I made you to do that. But you won't find it in running away from me. I have to save you from that. You won't find it in running to me for good things. I have to save you from that. You will only find it when you run to me for me. I can't think of anyone better who can capture all that I'm trying to say than St. Augustine. You don't know his story. His story is a story of one who was on a quest for joy, who found it. In Christ I want to share what he said about this joy. He said, "There is a joy that is not granted to those who don't truly have God, but only to those who worship you God without looking for reward, because you yourself are their joy. This is the happy life, and this alone to rejoice in you about you and because of you. This is the life of happiness. And it is not to be found anywhere else. Whoever thinks there can be some other is chasing a joy that is not the true one. Yet such a person's will has not turned away from all notion of joy. When our joy is shaken, God is saying, turn your will for joy to me. Okay. We might say at this point, you might be thinking, okay, I see a little bit maybe of David's faith here, but that's hard. You're saying this to to let go of chasing all the other joys in life and run after God for God. Can God really be the source of that kind of joy, The, the, the source of joy that cannot be shaken? How can I get there? How can I get that joy? And this is where Easter comes in. I told you this was an Easter sermon. One thing we know about human psychology, about how we change, about how we form habits, about addiction, all these things together, is that in order to let go of and stop chasing a lesser joy, we need more than to know that it's bad for us. We need more than to be mentally convinced that there's something better out there. The thing we need most to stop rust, running after, chasing after the wrong joy is a greater joy. We need to experience and taste a greater joy. This is why Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is the answer for how we get a joy that cannot be shaken. Joy that is true, joy that is real and better than anything else. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. It starts with, with the word for. David, in that word, is giving us the grounds, the basis, the reason for his unshakable joy. The whole soul, the whole thing stands on verses 10 and 11. All the joy is based on this. David says, Well, here's where I met. Based on everything I know about God, I don't believe death can be the end. I don't believe it can be the end of our relationship. How could he abandon me in Sheol? The realm of the dead. How could he let my body corrupt? And David here is expressing really the highest hope of life after death in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, the hope is there. It's somewhat faint, it's somewhat difficult to pick up. It's not clearly taught. Many Jews did believe in the resurrection at the end of time, and some did not. But David says, I look, I look at the end. I look at the door at the end of my life, and I have to believe it's not the end, but it is the beginning of real joy. Could you picture a door for me? I will give you a picture. If, if you don't have an imagination, that can picture a door. <laughs> this is a door. For every single one of us, this door awaits. It's death. The question is Is death a door that shuts behind us, that closes out all joy? All the joys we ever knew in this life shut. Or is it a door that opens before us and opens to us a joy unimaginable, greater than any joy we've ever experienced? A joy that everything is just an appetizer for in this earth. Everything's just a preview, a faint glimmer of that greater joy the answer to that question, that changes everything. What is the answer? Both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul said this, this psalm cannot be just about David because the door closed on David. This is what they said. They said, friends, we know David died. His tomb is with us to this day. We can go visit his tomb right now. The door shut on David. Was David wrong? They say, no. Here's what we've come to see. His prayer pointed ahead to one of his descendants. He spoke ahead about the resurrection of the Holy One, whom God would not abandon to the grave. He spoke ahead about another Holy One, whose body would not see any corruption. He was talking about Jesus. Jesus went into the door of death. It shut behind him. But on Easter morning, he broke open and busted open that door. He opened it up and said, all who believe in me, come in. Unshakable joy. This is how we get a joy that cannot be shaken. Because Easter is true. Jesus really rose from the dead. Easter gives us a greater joy than anything we can run after. Because what happened to Jesus will happen to everyone who believes in him. How can I get it? How do I get it? Follow two things to Jesus, friends. Two things. First, follow your reason. If it's true that someone has risen from the dead and has not seen corruption and says, I've opened the path of life. I've opened to the world. The door of eternal pleasure and joy. Can we just say, if that's true, that is a game changer. But only if it's true, if it's factual, if it's real. And this is the very core of the core of Christianity. It is true. The last two Easter Sundays, the past two years, I spent more time talking about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, I focused more on, on following our reason. I encourage you if you 're not sure whether it's, whether it's real, my Christian friends, if you doubt, if you struggle with whether it's real, follow your reason. there's so many good places to look NT Wright, Simon Greenleaf, Mike Lycona, to mention a few. Easter, the message of Easter is that it is true, so we have solid historical Ground for unshakable joy. It's not a wish. It's not an idea. It's not a metaphor. It's not blind optimism. It's a person who rose from the dead. Jesus. This Easter, I want to suggest reason. Follow your reason. It will get you there, but I think it will only get you to the door, if I can be honest with you. But there's something else that I want you to follow that will have you running through the door. You'll be busting it open and running through, and that is your joy. Follow your joy. There's a terrible misconception. It's a heresy, actually, that's widely believed about Jesus and Christianity. It's believed by Christians sometimes and non-Christians. And that is that Christianity is anti-pleasure and anti-joy. To that I say, what? Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is not anti-joy or anti-pleasure or anti-body. David says the ultimate basis for unshakable joy in this life is bodily resurrection, an incorruptible and eternal bodily existence with God forever. And so the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus is God's affirmation of everything he created, all the pleasures of food, And companionship, of hard work, of music, of story, of friends, of love, of beauty, and creation, and in art. God says, Guess who made all these? I did. I did as good things for you to enjoy. And who will make all things new? Jesus says, I will. That's the message of Easter. Friends, it is right for us to want our joys in this life to last forever. Our closest relationships and our favorite pleasures. Easter says, death won't take all those things away from us. It will intensify those things so that they are truly good. All that is truly joyful will be magnified because we will have the greater joy. God himself fully Only the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead can fulfill our joy. Not reincarnation, not just a redo and a try again in this broken world of sorrow. Not an escape from the material world into absorption into the universe. That doesn't sound joyful to me. Not a disembodied state of a happy soul just floating in the sky. That's not joyful enough for me only bodily resurrection. C.S. Lewis said this, No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. My friends, when you are shaken, when joy is taken from you, Look to Easter for unshakable joy. If we follow our search for fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, it will lead us straight to Jesus, straight to the door that he broke open on Easter Sunday, straight to the door that he says to us, it's open. Come in. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it seems too good to be true, a joy like that, a joy that cannot be shaken. We're so often shaken from that, and we're left wondering, is this search, this race that we're living, this this disappointment, this sorrow? Does it lead anywhere? Does it take us anywhere? We thank you that you have answered that definitively and clearly in the resurrection of your son from the dead. Strengthen our joy this morning. May the joy of the Lord be our strength and teach us Wherever we're coming from this morning, what it looks like, what it means to run to you for you. Thank you for being the God who ran to us so that we would have this eternal joy. We thank you in Jesus' name.